Okay. Let's uh, let's get started. I um, we're just going to do the blessed uh, Angela. That chapter. Uh, first of all, notice she's not called a saint, so she's like second string off the bench. Um, that's basically all that means. She's not she's not a saint yet, according to Roman Roman Catholic yeah Roman Catholic theology. Just in case you were wondering, let's see here. A couple other things in the next two chapters that came up in terms of uh, position was uh, I I don't have the book. It, she's uh, she's like of the third order of something or another. Saint Francis. Let's see here. It's towards the beginning. You know, as you read those things, yeah, the third order of Saint Francis. And then St. Catherine is like the, I mean, it's uh, St. Elizabeth. She is the patroness of the Third Order, regular of St. Francis, and the Franciscan secular order. Yeah, what does that all mean, though? There's uh, the First Order are, I'm just going to put it in real simple terms, is uh, the First Order of St. Francis are like the monks, the second order are basically the nuns, and then the third order are essentially, uh, for lack of a better way of describing it, lay people who devote themselves to others, but not necessarily in the cloister. Um, so, and then the secular order is is of the third order. It's, yeah, that's it. There you go. That's, I think that's simple enough. They take, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, they take a vow of the rule of St. Francis. They exercise it a little differently. So, so yes. Anyway, so when you, I don't know, when you read those things, if you read those things, uh, that's all that means. So, there you go. Considering, I don't think anybody's considering moving into the cloister right now. But uh, if you were, you have options. You don't have to do the second order. <laughs> you could do the third order. The, the thing, too, is that, um, uh, yeah, that's enough. We don't need to talk about that. Okay, um, Angela. Jan. That's right. Right. Which is generally, uh, and that's another reason why you would go into the third order. So, um, rather than the second order, second order I think is like you know it's your first gig in life. Just go right into the cloister. Okay. Um, I, to be honest, I, I I had a problem. I mean, I had I struggled with this chapter. Mary, I was hope I, my wife. I asked Holly if we could just go to Saint Elizabeth of Hungary, but she said it's probably best to do Angela. So, yeah, you know, yeah, because you know, I think last week we didn't talk about uh, we didn't talk about the, the actual book. We talked about another subject actually, which was kind of more fundamental. We should have had that conversation maybe at the beginning of our our, our work together. But um, Anyways, so uh, this is how we're going to do it. I mean, I think the last few times I kind of have an overarching theme. Like last time we talked about remembering rightly. This time, though, I think all we're going to do is just walk through the book um, under, 
essentially a, a couple headings. And the first thing that came up in the book that I thought might be a little bit unusual or something that we don't often think about as Christians is the ineffable. There's a couple times where that word is actually mentioned in the chapters themselves. One is dealing with like God himself, the suffering, and then the love, the love of God. Ineffable, for, you know. Just in case you're wondering what that means, I don't know. That means the kind of the indescribable. Uh, Lent, you know, is in a few months. My song is Love Unknown. I don't know if you guys know that Lenten hymn. But we sometimes when we think about these words, we, we think about it in terms of, you know, it's just a nice idea. We actually don't believe it's actually describing something. So think about that phrase. We sing it. And I think we sing it here at St. John. I mean, I feel like we have, right? Usually during distribution. Um, my song is Love Unknown. Okay, so how does that work? How can you know something that's unknow, unknowing? Okay? So that, that's kind of the ineffable uh, of God. And what's very interesting is that Scripture has some very profound opportunities to see that in action. Um, the, the first one, though, is, is faith as a darkness. And that phrase itself is something that uh, Luther uses. Also, though, that's a patristic understanding of faith, which at first sounds very kind of strange. Faith is a darkness. I mean, darkness is bad, right? So um, turn to Exodus chapter 20. This is the first time that it kind of shows. Oh, I, forgot to, uh, I forgot to bring out the Bibles. Somebody can bring them. Sorry. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if, you, if you kind of know your Bible, this is a big, real important chapter because this is where we get the Ten Commandments. The Israelites have come out to Mount Sinai, and then um, God speaks from the mountain. The only time he actually speaks to the nation of Israel as a whole. All the other times in the Old Testament, he speaks through a person, through Moses or, you know, a prophet. Uh I don't know if, uh, if you're interested like Bible movies. I, I, I'm always interested in how interpretations happen. There's a, a Ten Commandments. Obviously, um, Charlton Heston, I think that was, that's kind of a lame interpretation. Uh, this is not real creative. It's kind of, but there's one with Ben Kinsley, you know, the guy who played Gandhi. There's actually a, a Bible movie with him as Moses. And what's interesting about that is... Um, Actually, the entire nation of Israel is speaking at once. I thought that was a very interesting interpretation of the Ten Commandments. Um, Anyways, we could spend time on that, but that's not the point. The point is uh, Exodus chapter 20, I think 18. Yeah, 18 through 21. I should probably turn to it. Uh, this is at the end of the Ten Commandments, and what we find out is the Israelites really cannot handle God speaking. You know, I think a lot of us would just would be so happy if God just spoke from heaven. You know, because we're like not sure. Um, but if we read the Bible, when that actually happens, people usually don't like it, or or they they just don't get it. So, 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So, um, the presence of God and darkness go together. There's another uh, um, phrase like this in 1 Kings, where Solomon talks about it. Now, the darkness is the smoke, is the presence of God. Moses goes inside the darkness, and is God is present. The other opportunity where God speaks from heaven, too, though, in the New Testament is from John chapter 12. While this is less frightening, it's, it's, well, okay, so completely understandable in the Old Testament, but very frightening. Now, in the New Testament, in John chapter 12, we have something that's not quite understanding, but maybe a little less frightening. And John chapter 12, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me, so he's speaking. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. What would be the purpose? Take a wild stab. Yeah, crucifixion. Okay. Hopefully that's a little red flag for those who read the chapter. (laughs) Goes in your mind. Uh, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that, It had thundered. So, you know, if we're listening and we're really good Jews, we know the Old Testament. That's an echo of Mount Sinai. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So, um... Nobody understood it. It sounded like thunder coming from heaven. So Jesus was the only one who made sense of it. He's the one who was able to articulate it in a way that we were actually we were able to receive it. So God speaks, no one understands it, but it's Jesus who makes sense of it. And notice how Jesus makes sense of it. How does he actually finish his thinking? And we could keep reading it. It would echo the same thing. Is the crucifixion. So when God speaks, he's talking about glorifying, and it all makes sense in the crucifixion. Okay. Now, this whole ineffable ineffable <laughs> um, understanding of who God is and faith is, is actually echoed in, in Luther. And uh, there's a quote right there. But um, I find that very interesting. So as Christians, and then as we read about blessed Angela's kind of understanding of her own faith, it seems kind of unusual. You know, she talks about having these, um, you know, ecstasies. And she's not able to really articulate them. She knows something's there. She's heard something. But she can't really put it into words. You know, at first we, we might say, well, you know, what exactly is going on here? Maybe she had, you know, some tacos for dinner and she's got some, you know, she, she's, there's something else happening in her life. Maybe God's not speaking to her. Well, 
her experience is not that drastically different than Scripture. But the great thing about that, though, is it doesn't remain in the unknowing, but it becomes knowing in the crucifixion of Jesus. So if we read the chapter, we would realize that she doesn't really move from the foot of the cross. Uh, crucified Christ, or Christ crucified, is, is a very popular phrase in this chapter. And that's ins- very instructive for us as Christians. So, so before we get to that, though, is that faith as a thing is kind of a nothing, a no-thing, because faith, apart from the crucified Christ, really is an abstraction. And that is really fundamental to our Lutheran understanding of what faith is. So Jesus Christ is present in faith and actually fills it up and shapes it into himself. And um, I th- I th- that was at page 43 there. You know, Jesus takes up resi- residence in the person, in Angela. Transforms her into her shape, and then that's when she says, My son, if you were to see my heart, you would be absolutely obliged to do everything God wants because my heart is God's heart, and God's heart is mine. That's something that we, even Luther and Lutheran theology, maybe has, has uh, made it secondary to our, our life, our piety, but that's something that is actually part of our, our understanding of Scripture, Galatians 2.20. But we need to start first things first, and that deals with the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, the Pope, when he writes this book, he says, you know, many people want to get to the ending, this, you know, kind of interesting ecstasies, these interesting, fantastic experiences. And he says, you know, most people really downplay the journey to that point. And what's great is the first step actually ends up being the last step in her own journey, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus. So for us, as Lutherans, you know, we, we should be able to relate to that. That should, that should be pretty good for us. Because um, I, I couldn't find a Luther quote off the top of my head, so I just put a picture in there. You know, this is a picture here. This is from uh, one of the Lutheran churches in Germany. And it's just Luther... Every time he preached, he preached Christ crucified. <laughs> um, it might be, well, anyways, that's, a, that's a good enough quote. Picture's worth a thousand words. I don't have enough pages to put a thousand word quote. So, um, so anyways, so for the blessed Angela, Jesus, Jesus wasn't an abstraction. So this faith, even though it's a darkness, actually isn't an abstraction. Because faith is actually Jesus. Okay? And as Luther says, um, I think at that last sentence, therefore our, our real righteousness, the tangible righteousness, the living and active Christ in the Christian, is, is, um, is not love that informs faith. So love isn't the first word. Jesus is the first word. But it's faith itself in the cloud of our hearts, that is, trust in a thing we do not see in Christ, who can not in any way be seen, but nevertheless is present. So this is fascinating kind of understanding, which I think for if you have children, you know, you, you might tell your children Jesus is in your heart, and they look at you like, really? The thing is, though, they are very open to this understanding that he's not there. 
but he is there, meaning he can't be seen, but he is actually present. Now, what's the great thing is, though, is that when he actually is present in your heart or in your soul, um, then those outside can actually see God present in you and actually in love. So, you become, in a sense, you become Jesus, in a real sense, really. And we'll actually move to that in a second. So, uh, which I, I mean, I love kids because kids are very, what's their world of understanding? Hide and seek, right? So, you, I mean, kids play in the comments hide and seek all the time. I don't know if you guys come on Wednesday afternoons, they're playing hide and seek, which really just turns out to be running around after each other. But <laughs> it's, it, they, I think they, they really start out, honestly, hiding and seeking. Um, so you just ask, you ask a child, you know, if someone's hiding, does that mean that they're not there? Well, no. So um, the hiddenness of God in terms of faith is something that I think we all experience, but because of our temptations to really uh, see life only through our natural senses, we actually have wrong expectations in terms of God's presence in our life, which often you know, creates heartache and you know, sadness. But if God is actually always present, even though we can't see him, all that means is sometimes he's hiding. He's hiding. Now, the thing is, though, is if, uh, like, uh, when I play hide-and-seek with my kids, Isaac, he's, he's really a terrible player because he, he will tell you where he's hiding. So when he goes and hides, you know, I already know where he's at. So that's, that's what actually what God does. God tells us exactly where he's hiding. So even though I can't see him, I know he's there. And where does he tell us? Well, he tells us in baptism and his word and in uh, the sacraments. So, anyways, yeah. Yes. He is there. That's right. And so, if you actually, that's that's a good segue, Kirby. That's a good segue. I, I think we could just we could just skip. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um. Where God is not deeper still. So he's everywhere. You know, when we say God is everywhere, that doesn't sound so nice, does it? I mean, it sounds okay. But when we say, uh, you know, there's no pit that God's not in, that sounds really nice. That sounds good. I can handle that. I can, I can, ta- I can take hold of that understanding of God's presence. The other thing, too, though, is, um, well, so, yeah, so actually that's Angela. Bless Angela you know, had this, this conversion experience later in life, and she really struggled with remembering rightly. So when she looked at the crucifixion, she saw suffering. She didn't see the love of God. But what was fascinating, because of the, lo- the love of God, that suffering was transformed because of God's presence or Christ's presence in the midst of the suffering. Um, now, you know, here's the thing, though, is that that journey, so we read about it in the book. I mean, the, the, the chapter is, what, 12 pages or something? But this is a lifetime of her that she's actually experienced this suffering. So, you know, sometimes when, we, uh, when we're grieving and we're mourning, we always think about it in terms of, like, there will be a start of it, and then there will be an end of it. But if we, if we actually read the chapter, we realize that 
there was no end to her suffering, her struggle. Um, there was an end of the chapter for us, so then we kind of forget about it and we move on. But if we read it really intentionally and slowly, we realize that uh, Angela didn't actually get out of the pit. God's presence didn't actually remove her from the pit, but actually enabled her to, to live in the pit. Um, so it, it's this, it's, uh, in fact, uh, the Pope goes on to say is that, you know, she was a, she was a righteous woman, but even after, like, confessing her sins, the moment, like, she, you know, should have, I mean, the word that was spoken to her was absolution, but she still struggled with being in the miry clay in the pit. What's that? Well, exactly. So, um, yeah, Martin Luther had that issue too. You know, in Reformation Day, I don't know if anybody watched a Luther movie, but, you know, they make a big deal. The play, uh, Stacy Keach, I don't know if you knew that, but Stacy Keach played Luther. And uh, it, they actually made it into a movie, but it was a, it was a theater production first. And the movie works like a theater production on film. But that was kind of paramount to his uh, identity. There was this suffering and love all at once. And it was kind of a tortured relationship with the Heavenly Father. Okay, anyways, uh, I don't know where we are, but this is um, something that, that's, that's, very, that's very kind of at the forefront of who Angela is, is that when she starts her spiritual journey, she starts at the feet of Jesus, but when she looks at, at the crucifixion, she remembers wrongly, okay? Because we talked about that last time. When, she, when you remember rightly, you see the crucifixion not as a source of guilt and shame, but as a source of freedom and forgiveness and love. But even in understanding things incorrectly, God is so deep and wide and high that he can even use that for freedom, for forgiveness, for love. So what's great about her understanding of the Christian life is not simply getting out of suffering. That quote about getting out of hell, whether it's after death or right now, is is actually something that's just a first step. There is something much richer and farther down the line, and that's the love of God itself, or Jesus himself. So I think, you know, I mean, I was raised in a way that Christianity was about getting out of hell, and that, that's true, that's good. I mean, I, I mean, I don't like living in hell. But, um, but the, the reality is, is this not hanging out at the door, is, but it's getting as far away from that as possible. C.S. Lewis, in The Great Divorce, it's not about marriage. It's about the divorce between uh, heaven and hell. Uh, the character goes on this magic bus ride, and I think that's, that's kind of a fun little image. Uh, they go from this place that where no one talks to each other, but he sees people, and the houses, the more time you, you spend in this place, the farther you get away from people. He goes on the magic bus ride from that point to this other place. And eventually it's from hell to heaven. And on the journey, he realizes and he looks back and he sees where he actually came from. And it's, and it's this, this, this hole about this big. 
the magic buster came out of that hole. And that's hell. So this really kind of it kind of pictures what Angela is talking about about the Christian life. Just getting out of that hole is is such a is, is such a uh, small thing to the richness and the love of who God is. Now the great tragedy about it and the great struggle for each of us, and this is this is part of Angela's problem and our own problem, is that we realize it's so small. But why are we hanging around it? Okay, so. So how do you drive yourself away from that? And that is through the crucifixion. Um, yeah, the, okay, so, so the, I, I have that quote on the page, second page, kind of, the perfectly and purely we see. And that, that seeing is not just simply seeing, but understanding, knowing. As you say, oh, I understand, I see, as we kind of talk. The perfectly and purely we see the more perfectly and purely we love. Therefore, the more we see the God and man, Jesus Christ, the more we are transformed in him through love. So suffering and love are the primary steps for the growth in blessed Angela's life. And it's the location of these steps, uh, the locations of, uh, for these steps were the crucifixion. So what this means is from an objective observer, nothing's happened. So if Nancy is, is, let's pretend she's blessed Angela. From my perspective, she hasn't gone anywhere. She's still at the foot of Jesus. But from Nancy's perspective, or from a godly perspective, something that sees all of reality, the hiddenness, she's light years away. She's, she's, uh, she's a radically different person, a new person. And that, that's very important for us as we kind of understand our own selves. You know, because we, you know, we say our prayers, we go to church all the time, we come to women's Bible study, and we wonder if it's working. We wonder if we're, we're you know, are we growing as a Christian? And we struggle with this because, um, you know, we, every... Everybody has this temptation to believe that if I do all these wonderful things, life is going to just be, be better. We always associate better really in, in terms of our own selves. You know, which means, you know, I don't know, always have a job, be healthy, win the lottery, I don't know, lose 10 pounds, whatever it is. But the reality is, though, from Bless Angela's perspective and the biblical perspective, is that, that that's not how things work. And I think the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke um, 18 is a good example for us because Jesus up, you know, shows us the tax collector as someone who is justified, someone we look up to. But on the outside, it looks that's backwards. It doesn't make sense. Because the Pharisee is the one who does all the good works. But from the, the inner perspective, we see what's really going on there. So Bless Angela's life, again, we read, we read the chapter really quickly. I, I do, anyways. And when it's done in 12 pages, we're like, hey, on to the next person. We haven't really had time to meditate upon kind of the severity of her life and her struggles and how... Actually, they're not that far removed from ours. 
even though none of you guys are in the third order of St. Francis, she, uh, she actually was kind of like a normal person. Um, I've jumped over quite a bit of stuff, but I think that's okay. So the organic relationship between Christ for you, that's on the cross. It's kind of, I think we've been, at St. John, we've talked about the objective nature of Christianity and then the subjective nature. So if we talk about the Christ for you, as we stand before Jesus, is there a crucifix behind the screen? Okay. That's right, okay. We should have it still up here, I think. We're getting a different one. Anyways, um, let's imagine. Crucifix there. As, as we look upon the crucifix, that's Christ for you. But the penetrating, because of the Holy Spirit, that love, that presence now then comes in you. And when that happens, then your life is transformed. And I think I, I, I finished that, didn't I? Yeah, so, um, oh, children of God, transform yourselves totally in the man God who so loved you that he chose to die for you. So that's the, the subjective and objective all closely connected. Most... Oh boy, did I spell that right? Ignominious? I hope so. An altogether unutterable, painful death. There we go, the ineffable. And in the most painful and bitterest way. And this was solely for love of you. That's a, that's a very nice phrase. Strangely, or surprisingly, uh, Luther believed that love was analogous of the Incarnation. John 3.16 and when that same love became present in the person through the present crucified Christ, the person loved the neighbor. So as she talks about Christ becoming neighbor to you, that's the for you business on the cross, then that love coming inside you then transforms you into Christ among people. And uh, I think I said we must once again break out through love to help our neighbor with good deeds just as Christ became man to help us. That's Luther echoing uh, Angela. So when that presence come in, comes into us, into our hearts, however we want to say it, that transforms us into a whole new person. Again, if I see Mary, she still looks the same. You know, when Jesus was outside her heart and then when she became, she still looks like the same person. But on the inside, radically different. She's a whole new person. But that whole new person and I like Luther's language, breaks out. Must, must, be, must break out in the form of love. So then what's great about this is that the Christian now becomes a sign, like a, a billboard or a, a road sign pointing towards Jesus, specifically Jesus on the cross, that same love that was given to, to Mary. So even though she looks the same, she isn't the same. Inevitably, if someone were to have a relationship with her before and after, they would say, Mary, you're different. What's, what's up with you? You know, you still look the same, but something's different. 
don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life, or maybe you know someone like that. But that's, that's basically describing what's going on in Angela's life. Uh, so incomprehensible love. We all know what the love of God is, but yet it is in, incomprehensible. It's knowing and unknowing at the same time. So if anybody who really thinks linear, that's very difficult. That doesn't make sense. That's okay. It's still there. There's no greater love than this love that brought my God to become man in order to make me God. Now, that's pretty strong language. In fact, I, I probably should not have capitalized that. But, okay. Christianity, as I already said, is much more about simply getting out of hell. In fact, getting out of the hell was, the rudim- was so rudimentary for Bless Angela. She said getting out of the hell was poor in love. There was a whole life to live that the present Christ desired to live through her. Thus, for God to enter into humanity meant for humanity to enter into the divine life. Now, if I already said this already, maybe I wrote it down. I can't remember before this. But um, she has this little thing about love. And the on- there's only one kind of love. All love is God's love. Anything that's not God's love is, is something different. It's not. It, she talks about how worldly love and God's love can't be mingled. So, in order, if that statement's true, which I think it is true, um, in order for us to live a life of love, God has to take up residence in us, change us, and actually then become agents of God or become like God. Galatians 2, 19 through 20, and 2 Peter 1, 3, 4, 4. Let's tr- let's, uh, Galatians 2, 19 through 20, I think, is a pretty popular passage. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. You know, there's a couple other passages that I wrote down there, if you guys want to look at that later. That's from Corinthians. The, the, the Apostle Paul talks about how having nothing but yet everything. Uh, I love that little discussion in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He sounds very, like, Eastern. Um, there's, there's a couple other ones. But First Peter, or Second Peter chapter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power, that's his stuff, his divine nature, is granted to us all things, and that's literal, so all things, everything, that pertains to life and godliness. Um, so, everything we need. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So to the knowledge, that's just not a head knowledge, but that is the uh, objective reality of, of Christ crucified, Jesus. See, uh, Peter wouldn't say talk talk about it that way but by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire so you've escaped hell and you become part of god i mean you become part of the divine nature partakers. Um, 
the other yeah, the other passage that I had written down is in Second Corinthians, and I think it's I just put that whole passage there. Is Second uh, Corinthians chapter six verse one where Paul talks about cooperating with Jesus? The only way we can actually cooperate with Jesus is if Jesus is in us, working with us. Yeah, uh, Donna. That's right. That's right. That's right. It's the same. It's the same difference. Well, that, that's her life of love. Um, the only way she can actually love or live a life of love is because of the resurrection. Yeah, that's the subtext in the chapter itself. That's absolutely right. So the Bible has a lot of different ways of talking about this. And that's real helpful for us as we talk with other Christians and with each other. Is that So Donna brings up Romans chapter 6, which is a baptismal text. Uh, 6 verse 1 and uh, you know we memorized in the small catechism at confirmation and what happens there is that because of baptism what we're joined to Jesus so we become partakers of the divine nature um, right well the divine nature is resurrected that's right that, that's that's a, that's a given sorry I should have said that um so that the crucified Christ... Now, here's the great thing, too, is that... Um, I should have followed my outline a little bit closer. The crucified Christ is not a dead Christ. It's a living reality. His death is our life. In fact, St. Paul, this is why St. Paul is so adamant about this in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I preach Christ crucified, not as a dead Christ, but as a living reality. Because love is never compromised. It is sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. That is the new life of the resurrection. That's the, that's the resurrection life, is a life of sacrifice. That's why later in Romans, Romans chapter 12, Paul can say to us, uh, be, be living sacrifices. That makes no sense whatsoever, because sacrifices are supposed to die. But Paul says, you can become a living sacrifice, because death is behind us, Romans chapter 6. The resurrection, we are partakers already of the resurrection, which is partakers of the divine life. Um, that's exactly right. So, um, but then, okay, so let's, but if we walk around and we tell people, hey, you should participate in the divine life, people are like, what are you talking about? But if you say, let's participate in love, ooh, people can get behind that. Or if you talk about resurrection life, people will be like, that's Christianese language, but a life of love Love understood now according to scripture most uh, pointedly in the crucifixion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? So John 3, 16. Um, people, people, people don't understand that. They're like, oh, okay. The living sacrifice. Uh, so, yeah, so Donna, we're actually saying the same thing. I mean, that, that's a great thing. But you actually, yeah, so let's, uh, we should have followed my outline a little closer. We would have gotten to that whole point is that because of baptism and the participation of ourselves in the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can actually now live a life of love. That love, though, pictured in the crucifixion of Jesus. So it's kind of a, you can, you you, you know, I think we've all, hopefully we, we all kind of know this is that we never separate the crucifixion from the resurrection. Anytime we do that, then things fall apart. Because a crucified Jesus, apart from a resurrected Jesus, is a pointless Jesus. 
Okay? So, and you can't have a resurrection Jesus without dying. I mean, if you're alive, you don't need to be resurrected. So, um, yeah, so Donna, yeah, that's good. See, Donna just brought up the whole fact is she said the same thing, just saying it differently. That's kind of like having nothing but everything. <laughs> or, you know, faith. Anyways, yes, Beth. Yeah, right. Right. That, that's a great. That's a great question. Um, so, oh uh, yeah. So I was gonna say. Um, I didn't get my microphone there close, fast enough. She asked about is there you know you know a train of thought that where we like to kind of keep Jesus. Uh, we want to keep the crucifixion kind of back there and really only focus on the resurrection. That that idea, I. I I have family members who like to think about it that way. In fact, I, I did. I visit. I visited somebody at St. John, and uh, just last month, two months ago, three months ago, um, visiting with somebody, not like a like a shut visit. Uh, and they, you know, they asked about Good Friday. They like it's not good. I just I never can understand that. Um, and then just recently had another St. Johner who asked about the crucifix, uh, the, the iconic crucifix up in the uh, sanctuary, in the nave. Um, and then they asked the question, didn't Jesus come off the cross? And I said, that is absolutely true, yes. And then I just let silence reign. Yeah, I, I would say so, mainly because, it, but it's a false antithesis. That's exactly right. It's a false antithesis. Um, so I remember very clearly in a car with my family members, and I asked my dad, or oh, there we go, I let it out. Um, <laughs> you, could, could you have a resurrection without the crucifixion? Well, no. You can't, right? So, he go, so then he said, but Jesus came off the cross. And I said, yeah, right, so did the thieves. An empty cross is not the sign of a resurrection. An empty tomb is the sign of the resurrection. People need to get over that. I mean, I, I just I want to make sure that people realize is that that's just that's a that's a nothing statement. That doesn't doesn't mean anything to say that Jesus came off the cross. Okay, everybody who was crucified came off the cross. I don't I don't understand the point. Well, he's not up there anymore. Okay, this is true, but now we're, we need to understand our life in the way Jesus understands it, or the way the Bible talks about it. They can talk about, I'm going to just echo, well, calm down here a little bit. St. Paul says, I preached nothing but Christ crucified. So the crucifixion has to be at the forefront of our minds. I mean, this is Paul. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't try to disagree with Paul. Um, and then also Jesus, too. I, I, I mean, just the Gospels' accounts themselves. My favorite Gospel is the Gospel of Mark. And the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark actually does not have Jesus appearing at the resurrection. Well, let's just turn to it. Mark chapter 16. I've, most Bibles probably put that little note in there. Earliest manuscripts don't have Mark 9 through 16. So I'm just going to unload on you, Beth, and then you can kind of figure out how you want to you know, 
take all this information. Let's just presume that the earliest manuscripts were the most right. How does that work? I mean, is this good news? Well, okay, so, but yeah, but he, did he appear to the reader? No. Right? Because the, the young man says, he's not here. He's up in Galilee, just where he said he, he promised. Well, he does, actually, because Jesus talks to Mary. So we actually are reading about an, an appearance that Mary saw Jesus. Um, and then in Matthew, obviously, he appears to the Twelve and gives out the Great Commission. And Luke also, because he wrote, uh, you know, appears on the road to Emmaus. But in the Gospel of Mark, we actually don't have Jesus in the resurrection. We have a promise of Jesus of the resurrection. We don't actually have Jesus in Mark 1 through 8. Read 1 through 8. Jesus isn't in there. Just a promise of him. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating, though? It's hard to imagine. Trust me, Carol. I, I tried my, I, over the last, I mean, there are strange things that fascinate me in the Bible. And this is one of them. Because I said, you know, how could, I mean, the earliest manuscripts must have just been wrong. But actually, it's not an angel. It's a young man. It's a young man. We can get a whole different other little study in that one, too. Um, yeah, dressed in a white robe. He's the naked guy from Mark chapter 14, but that's fine. That's a different issue. Yeah, that's right, but there is resolution because how do we know that Jesus, in fact, was seen in Galilee? We're sitting here right now, today. Because if Jesus was not seen in Galilee, trust me, the twelve, they, they would have just gone home and, and maintained their fish. They would have tried to get their old jobs back. They would have, I don't know, had more kids and still worshipped in the temple, maybe took up the crusade against the Roman Empire along with, uh, you know, all the other crazy people who tried to do that at that time. So the Gospel of Mark is very informative for us because the crucifixion is the most important thing in the Gospel of Mark. And you, all you have is a promise of the resurrection. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. Well, it's not what the Bible says. That's very simple. It's not what the Bible says. Now, here's the thing, though, is we don't want to create a false antithesis. Now, my answer actually could be understood in terms of a false antithesis, that we only concentrate on the crucifixion and not on the resurrection. So if I'm talking to someone who has this very kind of narrow view of the crucifixion, I bring up this point. I bring up these, these, these points. And then I ask themselves, because they normally have this, this perspective of it's kind of depressing. I said, the thing is, though, is that would you want a God who doesn't actually understand you? You know, you know, it doesn't understand what struggle is? Well, no. But God is all-knowing, so he can kind of know it. Now we got into a whole different subject, which I'll try not to get into. But it's the participatory aspect of God's life in our life. The all-knowing of God, so, it, so now struggle, death, is now just a mental construct, but not a living reality in the life of God himself. What the crucifixion does is brings God's presence in a place where a lot of people aren't expecting him. 
Um, we're expecting God to be up in heaven. We're expecting God to be, you know, in the places. What time is it? Okay, we're expecting him all over the place, but not in death. But the crucifixion actually helps us to keep God in those places where we find, uh, where, we, where when things happen, what do we say? Well, God's not here. It's the old footsteps, you know. Mary Stevenson's footsteps where, you know, they look back. Hey, there's only one set of footprints, which I actually like that. I think that's actually kind of nice. Uh, it's true. We look back, and there's only one footsteps, footsteps and, she, you know, the, the, the narrator is angry at God, and God says, what? you know, child, listen, those are the parts where I was carrying you. Oh, okay. Okay, so Beth, yes, you had a question. Oh, Penny did. Sorry. Right. Sure. But you can't you can't know the Father without the Son. I mean, that's the thing. How do you know you're uh, a child of God unless you're with the child of God, with the Son of God? Expecting God to be in heaven. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So yeah, I I just want to challenge. I mean, I, I I would really just try to to cultivate the conversation. And also, Beth, you know, first gauge the fact if they're really interested in knowing. Oftentimes, yeah, oftentimes people don't really want to talk about that. Um, but I think that's actually very important for us as Lutherans because it actually is very comforting. Um, on both sides of the reality is that the, the death of Jesus is our comfort and the resurrection of Jesus is our hope, which is also comforting. So this idea is that because Jesus has died for us, he participates in that struggle, that aspect of life. But because he has risen from the dead, now he gives us this way out. You know, unfortunately, based, or not unfortunately, uh, maybe fortunately, but that way out, for a lot of us, we think are, we're going to take hold of that in this life. But ultimately, the promise is for life after death. So you might actually be struggling. And, and that's, that's the thing. Uh, well, I, you know, any other questions? Sandy. That's Martin Luther. The Heidelberg Dispensation. In fact, I was going to bring that up, but I thought, you know what? Uh, that's too nerdy. So, <laughs> yes, that was a Lutheran person. Well, and the fact is, though, how did, they, how did uh, the Pope start the, the, the chapter? The Way of the Cross, right? Oh, instantaneously, if, if we're maybe on the nerdy side of Lutheran doctrine, we'd say, oh, this is a theology of the cross coming up. And it, well, it is. It actually, I mean, it is a very uh, good way of understanding it. Right. Oh. See, that's where you really get them. That's right. I know. Ooh. See, now, if you're really angry with the person, then you can bring that up because that really zings them. Because, well, what if Jesus came down the cross? You're echoing the Pharisees. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's if you really, really want to zing them, I would recommend not. But I have used that before. And I, I don't feel, I don't regret that because that was, that's just, sometimes you got to, you got to zing people sometimes. 
Plus, they're a family. They got to love me, so. <laughs> no, I, but yeah, I, I, I say that sort of facetiously, but that's actually true. That's actually part of the conversation, is that if Jesus were to come down the cross, that would be echoing the people who are mocking him. The point is that Jesus stayed on the cross. All right, Carol. Right. That's right. He's not breathing, so you can breathe. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, um, I mean, there's, it, it, the thing is, though, is that, I mean, these are all ways of understanding the message of the crucifixion. These are not apart from the crucifixion. And, um, again, I, I, I kind of want to keep driving the point is that because th- this, the struggle that we engage, that was uh, the point of uh, me reading Psalm 42 in the chapel, is that, I don't know if you guys noticed, it went back and forth. So what's wrong with you? I'll praise God. So it goes all the way through the psalm, this back and forth. And that is a great help for us because when we, we want, we want, the way, the, 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 the understanding that we actually are participating in the resurrection life now, even in the midst of the pit, is that we can actually have hope. That's, that's the hope. Hope is the sign of the resurrection when we're living in, in the pit not getting out of the pit, according to what the Bible says. Now, God might grant us to get out of the pit, and that's where we should live a life of thankfulness and grace. And But even if he doesn't, that doesn't exclude his promises to actually resurrect us once we die. Um, I mean, just, just uh, ask anybody who lives in Africa who's a Christian. Not anybody, but people who are suffering. And yet, I mean, they, they, they actually are still Christian, even though they are really living in hell, a hell. You know, so, I mean, it's, it's just this thing is that they're not actually, they don't have an expectation that God's going to deliver them right then and now. But they, can, they still are Christians till their death. That's a great inspiration for us. Well, that's exactly right. That's Mark chapter 8. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, coming back around now, is the promise of the resurrection in the Gospel of Mark are for a bunch of people who have not experienced or has not, have not actually seen the resurrection. All they have is a promise. And that's all we have. So, anyways, that's a tapestry. We, we painted a tapestry. Yes. Right. It would have fizzled out, yes. That's right. Well, or he could actually resurrect. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. That's exactly, uh, it's a, uh, Kirby brings up a good point, because that, that's a real issue in first century Christianity. So depending on your view of the Gospel of Mark, not to enter into Nerdville, but you have, it's either written in Rome or in, in Palestine. Rome, completely far away from what happened. And you have a group of people who are trying to figure things out. But they're being persecuted by, the, by like Nero and, you know, the emperors. And the, if it was in Palestine, same situation but different kind of persecution because they are mixed Jews and Gentile church. 
but you have this you have this very real issue of is it the Roman is it the authorities who have done something with the body, or is it these the locals or the disciples, or is it resurrection? So, um, anywho, I don't know what we learned today, but it was a lot of different stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, just just uh, offer up a different view. I think it's basic. Maybe this was helpful for us today because I felt like, you know, bless Angela, right, where she uh, she would speak and nobody would understand her. You know, you go home to say, what do you talk about? We talked about a lot of different things today. Ineffable God. Why we should have a crucifix. All right. Um, uh, St. Kath or uh, Elizabeth of Hungary next week. Uh, you know, Pastor Gainick's receptions this weekend, so please come. Bring cookies if you said you would. Because Jesus would. And you're going to want to do what Jesus does. What would Jesus do? He would bring cookies. All right. Um, let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.